Health Radio. Here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to another edition of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. Corey Yelland is away today. And just before we get to our guest, just a quick reminder, if you feel our work here is of value and would like to make a contribution to allow us to continue doing this work, then go to our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and go to the Donate page and make a contribution, either a monthly contribution or a one-time contribution, to keep us going here at Cannabis Health Radio. Our guest today is a pioneer in treatment of disease through the use of medical marijuana. He began his career as a general practitioner in 1976, and after 25 years in emergency medicine, he began his medical practice in cannabis consultations and general medicine consultations. In 1999, he provides consultations with residents of California and with folks worldwide by phone and online appointments. He's also a founding member of the Society of Cannabis Clinicians. And joining us from California is Dr. Jeffrey Hergenrather. Good to have you on the program, and I appreciate your time. Thank you. As someone who was educated in the conventional medical system and who practiced as a medical doctor for many years, what led you down the path towards medical cannabis? Well, as a uh, young, idealistic, uh, long-haired kid coming out of college, I was curious about cannabis. I went off to medical school and looked it up in the library and back in 1970 found very polarized information about it even then. Uh, so I talked to my dean about it, and um, we... I went along those years of medical school, not really having much time to devote to cannabis study, but remained very, very curious. And then when I saw uh, President Nixon uh, bring down the uh, the House as far as uh, making really getting the drug war underway, I thought, well, this is very curious. And I I became um, more and more interested in the medicinal uses thereof. Now, I went off to a commune with my family in 1977. We were friends with people that uh, were destined to start the farm in Tennessee, uh, a community, an intentional community uh, that revered cannabis. So our family moved there from 77 till 82, and cannabis was privately used, albeit against the law in this community, and I learned from patients over and over again what it was that cannabis was doing for them. So in those years, I came to understand, gee, this is great for pain. It's great for autoimmune disorders. It's great for seizures. It's great for mood disorders and so forth. So as the law finally came to change in California, as I had moved west with my family and, and uh, was a ER doc for my gainful employment, it was the change in the law in 1996 that made it so that I could really begin a practice in cannabis, which I was completely comfortable with. So it was really quite easy to transition into that role. 
Now, in your practice, when you deal with people from around the world, what is required of a patient prior to you agreeing to consult with them? Well, I think uh, the patient and I get uh, more out of the consultation if I can get some some of the details. So it might be a pathology report or it might be a consultation report or something that, that really is a medical record that highlights exactly what the patient is dealing with. If I don't have that, then I'm just a little unclear as to what the condition is. Granted, we can work around it to some degree, but if I can get a, a released medical record or something faxed or emailed to me, it really is a more useful uh, visit. That's what I ask for is a medical record. I also will send out a health questionnaire, which is rather extensive. It's, an, it's uh, about five pages of questions. And if I can get them to fill that out, then I can fill in a lot of the details around the onset of illness, uh, the operations that somebody's been through, the family history, which is often very telling as far as the genetics of the person that I'm dealing with. So, so Dr. Hergenrather, do you uh, have provide consultations or do you deal with, with doctors and teach them about the medical benefits of cannabis? More all the time. It's been a chilly start into that field. Uh, I had a visit for an alternative grand rounds about 20 years ago and you know the the questions were very uh contentious you know why would you do this i they didn't understand it uh, now i've had uh, a ha- oh i'm coming up on about a half dozen uh one hour continuing education uh grand round type visits to hospitals to talk to the medical staff about how to use cannabis in primary care I have one coming up next month down in the San Francisco area at a big hospital. And so I really enjoy getting out and actually talking with the docs and bringing a slide set that helps them understand how this really is medicine. How has the attitude of doctors changed from when you first got into this to now? You know, the docs are about the slowest to change. The public has changed. The public realizes that, gee, my friend got cured by cannabis or is alleviated of their condition. The docs seem to be the slowest to come around to it. They're so busy, they don't want to get involved in cases that might land them in court. Uh, they just would rather stay clear and wait for the government to change it from Schedule 1 down here in the U.S. to a status that would allow them to really talk about it. So I encourage the patients to talk to their doctors that said, I have had a lot more physician referrals in the past couple years. There's really been a swing over the last couple years to where more and more doctors are appreciating just what I've said. Their patients come in and say, this is working for me for pain or it's working for whatever they may be treating. And then the doc is coming to at least accept that maybe this really has some medicinal value. And this person that is in front of them is a... Uh, uh, a law-abiding citizen of the community, and, you know, why wouldn't they be telling them to, the truth about cannabis? So, yes, there is a change. It's just very slow with the docs. It is, and one of the complaints I hear from doctors, the statements from doctors with respect to medical cannabis is that there 
aren't sufficient studies to warrant its use medically. Yet, what sufficient studies were there for OxyContin? Or what sufficient studies were there for Lipitor or Adderall? What are your thoughts? Well, the drug companies have the upper hand. Many drugs come to market with very little in the way of uh, adequate uh, studies. And honestly, I believe many are brought to market just to recover costs and to make a little money before they well know, maybe even before the drug is on the market, that these are dangerous drugs and shouldn't be uh, marketed. But they make some money, and then the I'm, my guess would be the actuaries, the bean counters say, okay, we have enough lawsuits now to where we better pull it from the market, and it'll disappear. I just think that as long as we can have the drug companies getting drugs on the market with just a couple studies, usually they're in-house studies. They're not really done by university centers or independent researchers. Uh, we're just going to continue to have the same uh, relationship. Now, on the other hand, cannabis does not have any uh, anybody helping out the, the plant. So there are, gosh, on Google Scholar from 93 till the present time, there's been over 40,000 studies on cannabis and cannabinoids and scores of thousands of, as well in the endocannabinoid system. So to say that we don't have enough studies, in, in a sense, is really disingenuous. We have a ton of information, mostly about the safety and the utility of, the, of these chemicals. As far as clinical studies to really find the details of what's going to work best for people, what kind of dosing, what kind of ratios of cannabinoids, yes, we could, could use a lot more information. But it's not that we don't have clinical studies on cannabis. We do. They just don't uh, find a place into the um, news media. Okay, let's treat the, uh, the the rest of our discussion here as more of an educational uh, component with respect to those people who are listening. Can you explain the role of THC in the body and also the role of CBD? Well, I think I can, at least to the degree that we understand it at this point. This is all based on the endocannabinoid system, and I'm sure with the title of our show, everybody has some, not everybody, but many will have an idea of what that means. This is a, a biological system. It's a homeostatic system within the animal kingdom, excepting insects. So throughout the animal kingdom, all the way down to hydra and sea squirts and fish and reptiles and amphibians, all the way through the, uh, the, the mammals, everybody has an endocannabinoid system. And that's based on having receptors and molecules that fit into the receptors. And when that is activated on demand, then it'll help us to eat or to sleep or to relax or to forget in a proper way or to protect us in a variety of ways. So it's all about bringing us back to balance. Now, THC is able to get into that receptor and activate it. So it does what the natural cannabinoids that are there already in the body are doing. It's metabolized rather quickly from smoker-vaporized cannabis, THC. It'll be gone within a couple hours. With it ingested, it may last anywhere from 5 to 15 hours, depending on the metabolism of the person involved. So the THC actually does the work of the natural system. So 
it as an adaptogen, which we could talk more about, will encourage, will help people to relax or to sleep or whatever the need is at the time. Now, CBD gets into the receptor as well, but because of very subtle differences in the shape of the molecule, it does not activate the receptor. So its work is somewhere else in this in the cell, and it's spoken of as being epigenetics. Uh, it's a kind of a new term in biology, has to do with the expression of genes. So it's coming about the same pharmacological effects, but from a different mechanism of action. So I, I can't really tell you any more specifically how CBD works. It's a bit of a mystery. But when THC and CBD are there together, they are much more effective at treating a condition than they are individually. Studies in pain, studies in cancer cell, well, basically killing cancer cells, and in uh, clinically, I would say, in seizure disorders and many other conditions, if they are there together, they work a lot better than they do individually. So with the, with the recognition of CBD, the, the scientific community knew about CBD 20 years ago, but it has um, really been the work of a handful of people in California, to my, in my opinion, that have brought CBD-rich plants into the uh, recognition by the medical community, or at least this, the cannabinoid doctors, that we have medicines here that are unique and powerful and they do not have nearly the degree of psychoactivity. So it's, it's really changed the game. Everyone knows what happens when you take too much THC, but can your body get too much CBD? Not to my knowledge. <clears throat> I haven't seen any evidence that it is causing any harm in large doses. With THC, as you say, uh, it's a limiting factor, and for some people, a milligram or two milligrams of THC ingested is a uh, dose that they may feel. By the time you get up to five milligrams, most people will feel five milligrams, 10 milligrams, 15 milligrams, 20 milligrams. Then it depends on whether you're familiar with it and like it or not. It may be dysphoric in people who don't care for it. In CBD, you may feel a reduction in anxiety after you have a 5-milligram dose or 10-milligram dose, but you can take hundreds of milligrams of CBD uh, without any impairment. So it seems to be real, somewhat unlimited in how much you can use. We got a report out of Israel recently that they were using three or 400 milligrams of CBD in kids with autism uh, to quite a good benefit. So there is a... Uh, a lot of room in using CBD. Also, CBD softens the effect of the THC because it's there as well. It gets into the receptor as well. It reduces the psychoactivity. So you get the, the uh, effect of both when they are both in the medicine you're using. Well, what are some of the other cannabinoids that are beneficial to, to humans that maybe people don't understand at this point? Well, I think that second part of your phrase is the is the point. We don't have a lot of research. We know that uh, THCV is uh, fairly uh, prominent in the plant. It might be one or two or three percent of the cannabinoids. 
Uh, sometimes more CBG is there, CBN is there. CBN may be more of a breakdown product than uh, an active cannabinoid. It's not entirely clear. Uh, CBDV uh, is another one that's a player. Uh, CBC, you know, if I take these collectively, I would say they have been recognized to kill cancer cells. They've been re- recognized as having immune modulating effects. More or less, all of the effects that we see with THC and CBD have been seen in some of these other cannabinoids. Uh, whether they will stand alone as molecules that we want to use as medicines is yet to be seen. But uh, GW Pharmaceuticals, who makes Sativex, which is available up there in Canada, um, they have developed a more or less an all CBG strain, and they're kind of looking for places to use it. Uh, I don't know exactly what their state of research is at this point, but it is a molecule of interest. THCV is a mild blocker of the cannabinoid's receptor and is thought that maybe it will be helpful for uh, for diet or for obesity or other metabolic syndrome kinds of problems. So I, I think there's a lot to be learned yet. I, I wouldn't venture to say that a particular molecule is a treatment for anything at this point, but uh, it's coming. This work is being done. There has been uh, some discussion about what is called the entourage effect. Can you explain to listeners what that term means? I think I can. If you look at THC, you probably have about 20 or 30, probably closer to 30 pharmacologic actions that you can point to. You can look at the literature and you start looking at all of the things THC does, and it does all of those things. Now, as I mentioned, THC alone may be dysphoric. It may cause anxiety or it may cause even a panic attack. And people who are quite familiar with cannabis, if they get too much of it, they may wonder if they should be going to the ER and have to sleep it off. Now, if you look at all the other cannabinoids in conjunction with the THC, most of these have not got any significant psychoactivity that we know about. There's also a huge number of terpene molecules in the plant. It's described as being about 150 different terpenes. Granted, there are dominant terpenes, beta-caryophylline, limonene, myrcene, and so forth. And these all have pharmacologic actions of their own. So the non-THC pharmacologic actions of these other molecules work in conjunction with the THC and the cannabinoids to work better together than they do individually. And they also have, uh, as I mentioned with CBD, in conjunction with THC, have an ability to soften the effect of the THC and make it a much more uh, acceptable medicine. So again, they work better together than they do individually. This just kind of fits with the whole idea of natural medicines. Strikes me, uh, it's very similar to the carrot, which contains beta carotene, and, and you isolate beta carotene. It's much better to eat the whole carrot because it may have nutritional value that you, that the isolate does not have. Yes, is that uh, what you're saying? Yes, it really is. We do recognize that the whole plant works better in research studies. I mean, if you're looking at pain in animal models, the whole plant 
is better for controlling pain than the individual molecules. You know, I think the more we look, the more we'll find that the whole plant really has uh, better qualities than the individual molecules. So it gets away from the drug company uh, reductionist methods and, you know, demands really that the FDA start to look at whole plants as medicines. We're just beginning to break the ice here in the United States in that regard. There are two plants that are utilized for their extracts in um, that have been approved by the FDA down here. And I, I think we just need to keep asking the regulators to allow us to use plants as medicines. You know, last week I did an interview with Dr. Mark Circus in Brazil about uh, medical marijuana, which he is uh, a great supporter of. He described marijuana as nature's chemotherapy. Do you mm-hmm. agree? Do you agree? Well, it certainly has uh, a great uh, effect in that regard. Uh, you know, it does. When I hear that, I would have to say, yes, it is. And like any chemotherapy, some chemotherapies uh, work on a particular uh, tumor line. And uh, in some of the tumors, it just doesn't work. And that seems to be more or less true of cannabinoids as well. They have tremendous utility as cancer treating medicines. And I think in some basic research, we're seeing that in conjunction with uh, conventional chemotherapy, they work uh, better uh, together than they do individually. But I've seen numerous cases where people have had uh, cancers and metastatic cancers, and they've begun to use cannabis in some cases as a sole act of treatment and had the cancers uh, stop growing and disappear. So, yes, this is a chemotherapy drug, and what it's doing is acting through this natural cannabinoid system, which has a role of programming cell death in tumor cells or abnormal cells in our body anyway. That's the job. The CB2 receptors are in the mobile immune cells, uh, the macrophages, monocytes, they're cruising around the body looking for trouble when they find problems. The, also the immune cells, the B cells and T cells, they're looking for troubles and they are rich in these cannabinoid receptors. And when they are activated to do their thing, they kill off cancer cells. So we're just augmenting a natural system that's there. Dr. Hergenrather, I watched a video of you at a conference that uh, in Australia last year, and uh, you were talking about people coming to you, and they say, I have MS or I've got an autoimmune disease, and you say, no, you don't. You have a cannabinoid deficiency syndrome. Mm-hmm. Can you tell people what you mean by that? Well, this is a very interesting part of uh, what we're learning with being able to look at people's genes now, where we had not been able to do that when I was a medical student, uh, with rare exceptions. But we are able to see that there are polymorphisms, many forms of the cannabinoid gene, uh, cannabinoid receptor genes. Yes, they're quite similar. Uh, They're basically necessary for life. But there are variations. And this gives us some evidence that uh, 
there is clusterings of genes that follow certain conditions. So people with <clears throat> depression, for example, or an autoimmune disease, uh, as another example, or, or suppose, you know, what appears to be true for Huntington's disease, Parkinson's disease, MS, and so forth. These are conditions that have polymorphisms of the, of the cannabinoid genes that look alike. So we can surmise that these are probably or possibly endocannabinoid deficiency diseases. We haven't really had a, a description of their cause before. Medicine is full of using the word um, idiopathic for the cause of the disease, meaning we don't know what causes this disease. But at least in a, in a uh, couple handfuls of conditions now, there's been a proposal that these diseases are, in fact, because of abnormal abnormalities of the cannabinoid genes. So in saying that they don't work the same as the next person's, I, you know, when you see a person come into you with uh, who's in her 20s or 30s and she's already been diagnosed with MS and rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's disease, you've got to look at this and say, gee, this is across many different diseases. Well, there must be some common uh, basis for this. And what really fits best is to say these are endocannabinoid deficiencies. So these people don't mount a response against the inflammatory processes, uh, against the cancer cells, against the autoimmune problems that uh, present. And if we augment the cannabinoid by way of the plant, we can significantly impact the health of these people. That's certainly interesting because so many diseases today are described as autoimmune diseases, the dysfunction of the, auto, uh, the immune system. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the commonality with respect to this is what you have outlined here, a deficiency in the cannabinoid system within the body. Yes. Yeah. Now, in your opinion, what is the best thing the average person can do to improve their health with respect to medical cannabis? Well, I think it's, it starts with changing the laws. <laughs> you know, if you can grow these plants in your yard and add them to your life in many ways, it's, it makes a dramatic difference. We're really beyond the age of uh, smoked marijuana as a use of this plant. This is very important. It, it's really the the chosen method, method of administration in the majority of my patients still. So after all these years and talking about vaporizing, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> and talking about the use of um, tinctures and oils and so forth, predominantly people enjoy taking a puff on cannabis. Now, that said, these molecules can be used by infusing oils, which is very easy to do. If you just take the, the either the green uh, flowering tops of the female plant or the dried tops and putting it into olive oil, you can make an infused olive oil quite e- efficiently. That oil then holding these cannabinoid and terpenoid molecules 
is a medicine. It can be used topically, and it's very healthy for the skin to put an infused olive oil onto the skin. Helps with keratoses, helps with skin cancers. It helps with inflammatory conditions such as eczema and psoriasis and so forth. We can use the cannabinoids orally uh, in terms of a small amount of medicine that you may not feel to, I think, promote health. So we can look at these as, you know, not unlike just a vitamin. You're using a little bit of cannabinoid below a threshold where you would feel it uh, to support health. And in what I would guess will be shown with research in the future is that people using cannabinoids have less risk of cancers and less risk of um, uh, showing up with other conditions with aging as the natural cannabinoid system wears down. I think this is really what we see in aging is the endocannabinoid system wears out like any other part of our body. And so we don't deal with inflammation and, and stresses the same way as we get older. One of the things that has absolutely astounded me in doing this program is interviewing people all over the world who have had some very, very serious ailments. Some were even in hospice, and yes. they they took uh, cannabis oil, and they're out, and they made just a remarkable recovery. Had an interview the other day with a woman in Kentucky who had um, had cancer, and uh, bone cancer, and she started taking cannabis oil and was in remission, but she was on 14 pharmaceutical medications that were absolutely poisoning her system. And once she got off all those medications, which she said it took her well over a year to get off all of them, all 14, and she makes her own cannabis oil. She lives in uh, California, but she was on uh, vacation in Kentucky. It just astounds me the medical benefits of this plant. But in the future, I see Big Pharma pushing back on this, and Big Pharma is influential at the political level in every country in the world. Yes. What are your thoughts? you feel the same way? Yes, absolutely. It's really criminal what we see as far as the pressure against the plant. If you look at who's putting money up, in our federal government for the the fake research and the and the uh, news reports that are put out by our ONDCP the office of uh, national drug control policy you know the your brain on marijuana is this fried egg kind of thing you may have seen it up in the in Canada yep. um, this is this is intended to scare people Maybe some people actually believe it's true who are putting it out there. But mostly, this is politics and preventing the plant from ever seeing the light of day. And the feds really believe that they have it locked up, even though there are obvious medical benefits. They have enough people at the NIH and the National Institutes on Drug Abuse to continue to vilify the plant and say, well, for example... There's a comment that came out of the National Eye Institute at the National Institutes of Health in the United States. And about 10 years ago, they had, well, about 30 years ago or 40 years ago, they had done some basic research. And they saw that THC and cannabinoids were able to lower intraocular pressure and help with protection for glaucoma. 
But the comment they made 20 years ago was, we don't want to study marijuana because we already have drugs that work as well as it or better. So, well, I guess it was really the other way around. They said marijuana does not lower intraocular pressure any better than the medicines that we already have. Consequently, they don't want to study it or don't want it to be studied. If that's the posture of the federal government bureaucracies, we're not going to get the opportunity to turn it out of uh, Schedule 1 and be able to really look at what's going on here. So there's a huge stake. We're talking about billions annually in medications that would be replaced, at least in part, by the use of cannabis. And as long as they can keep it illegal and keep people fearful, then they're going to be able to continue to market uh, rather scary drugs to the uh, public worldwide and um, not really allow the benefit of this natural plant. Dr. Hergenrather, it's been uh, a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, we all appreciate the work you're doing in this. If folks want to have a consult with you, because uh, we have uh, people listening to this program worldwide, how did they go about that? I, I have a website, doctor, that would be drjeffhergenrather.com. J-E-F-F, Hergenrather is H-E-R-G-E-N-R-A-T-H-E-R. Dot com And you can send me a note and I'll pick it up and answer. <clears throat> and I have a, a direct email uh, to my office at jhergmd at gmail.com. So right. I am happy to pick up those, uh, those uh, inquiries. <clears throat> we do um, schedule them from the office. So if, if somebody starts out with an inquiry and we say, would you please call to schedule if you want to, we just um, arranged to do that and typically use a, um, uh, a credit card charge for, for a time period that uh, we would spend together. I, I usually do about, about a half-hour consultation with folks uh, remotely. Sometimes people really want to talk more, and I'm happy to do that as well. Great. Very good of you to do this. Thanks very much. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed having the opportunity to talk to you today. And we apologize for the little static on Skype during uh, that conversation with Dr. Hergenrather. It was near the end, but uh, everything I think everything was clear, and uh, his email address was easily understood. There you have it, another edition of Cannabis Health Radio. We'll be back again tomorrow. You've been listening to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. Visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to PodConnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, 
host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did. Thank you.